Uh, first thing, for people who are going to be traveling by air, uh, some people have been talking about ride sharing and saving a little bit of money to the airport. There's going to be a, a sign-up sheet over here at the conference desk uh, in which you can spontaneously organize yourselves. I just want to be very clear. Uh, I or my colleagues will not coordinate it, and it's not going to be paid for by Cato. Uh, but if you want to put on the list of who's going at rough times and be able to coordinate people who want to travel together to the airport and save a little bit of money, and then the bellmen who are over near the front desk can assist you this afternoon or evening with booking the car. So if you find someone else has a flight at the same time, you should uh, connect up and then you can book the flight. There's also going to be a student meeting after dinner and that's an opportunity to hear people such as Professor Barnett explain all the mistakes he's made in life <laughs> and how you can avoid them. <laughs> and then, in, in addition, it, sorry? Did anybody need to ride to Ontario? I'll be going up there. Okay. Anyone going to Ontario? But we'll talk about this later, afterwards. Um, if you've reserved one of Randy Barnett's books, please pick it up and please pay my colleagues for the book at the registration table. And I, let's see, your underline says, any books not picked up will be sold tomorrow morning. So make sure you get that. And then finally, beverage tickets at the registration table um, after this final event. All right, so let's get going, because I'm on the clock here, you know? We're on the clock. Um, so libertarians are offered, often portrayed as radicals. And in a sense, this is accurate. The three senses of radical could each be said to characterize libertarianism. Here's the first sense. Quote, relating to or affecting the fundamental nature of something, far-reaching or thorough. Second meaning of radical, characterized by a departure from tradition, innova innovative or progressive. Third meaning of radical, relating to the root of something. Libertarians do make claims about the fundamental nature of things, and strive to be thorough in the application of their principles. Libertarian policies are often a departure from tradition. Libertarians do strive to go to the root of how society should be structured, and they claim that root to be liberty. However, if by radical you mean extreme, then libertarianism is the opposite of radical. In this talk, I'm going to explain why libertarianism today is actually a far more modest political approach than that of either the social justice crowd on the left or the legal moralists on the right. Indeed, the more radical a libertarian you are, the more modest a position you advocate as compared with these two extremes. So let me begin by defining what I mean by social justice and legal moralism. Now, the social justice crowd, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the term social justice. It's very, very prevalent in academia. It's really, really prevalent at Georgetown. We are committed to social justice as part of the Catholic uh, tradition, we are told. Um, and I mean, that's, that's, how, that's the law school's um, uh, interpretation of the Catholic tradition. Um, uh, but those of you, when you hear the term social justice, if you hear somebody use the term social justice and you, haven't, you don't know anything more about that person, that person's 
a lefty. Okay, so that just this is not, you, that just they have self-identified. They may not know what they're talking about, but they have identified what circles they run in. All right, so I'm going to define social justice um, in the way that I have come to understand it, being exposed to it so often as I am. So the social justice crowd holds some version of the view that everyone is entitled to some quantum of stuff. And if they don't have whatever it is that a particular social justice theorist thinks they ought to have, we need a coercive government with the power to take from those who have this stuff and give it to those who don't. Now this sometimes also entails that no one should have any or too much more stuff than anyone else. But whether the standard is absolute or comparative, social justice consists of everyone having whatever they are supposed to have according to the advocate of social justice. That's it. It's not really much more complicated than that. Now, there are at least three fundamental problems associated with this position. The first is that there is no single and salient answer to what everyone is supposed to have. Almost everyone who advocates for social justice has either a different view of this or, more commonly in my experience, no firm view they are willing to articulate. For example, try asking someone who says that the rich are not paying their fair, their fair share of taxes. And then you ask them, okay, well, what is the fair share? You will either get a blank look or a single word answer. And that answer is more. more. Yes, that answer is more. Right. Whatever the well-off well are now paying, they should be paying more. more. Right. Whatever the less well-off have, they should have more. Right. How much more? Not saying. Not saying how much more. Just more. Just more. Now, this lack of specificity makes crafting actual policies extremely unstable. There is no core position around which any political consensus can be formed. There is no identifiable limit beyond which the policy of redistribution can be deemed unjust. In the absence of a consensus, whatever policy may actually be implemented will be politically unstable. Only the subgroup who favors the prevailing plan will be satisfied that social justice is being done. No matter how much redistribution of income or wealth is adopted, there will always be cries for more or different forms, which will greatly undermine the security of everyone's possessions and the ability to plan. And then there are the many who will persist, like us, in, in objecting to using force to achieve social justice. Now, this is just not a recipe for peaceful, a peaceful and contented society. A second problem is that achieving any particular pattern of distribution will require highly intrusive government administrative mechanisms. Some subset of society will need to be given special powers to collect the information on everyone's wealth or income. I mean, it depends on if you're a wealth social justice person or an income social justice person. Those are, right, those are two different things, by the way. But you're going to have to have some mechanism that's going to collect the information on everybody's wealth or income or both. And that's not some accidental occurrence that can somehow be avoided. It's absolutely necessary to know from whom to take the wealth and to whom to give it, according to the approved pattern of social justice. Collecting this information will necessarily be privacy invasive, and the existence of a database with such information can lead to the intimidation of dissidents. Third, and finally, a problem that was identified most prominently by Robert Nozick 
a wonderful guy who I was told last night is still the object of sexual uh, fantasies by young graduate students everywhere, uh, whatever level of redistribution is adopted will require the continual use of force to achieve and maintain over time. The natural outcome of liberty will inevitably destroy whatever pattern of holdings is adopted as the, society, as the societally just one. In addition to collecting the relevant information to discover how actual holdings differ from this pattern, some subset of persons will need to be empowered to use force to continually adjust holdings so that they may conform. These three fundamental problems lead to the following mega problem with social justice policies. Any institution powerful enough to gather this information and enforce this pattern will be highly intrusive and enormously dangerous. Not only will it have the exceptional power to violate the background rights that libertarians advocate as the prerequisite for pursuing happiness in a social context, it will have the power to deviate from the pattern of any particular so that any particular social justice advocate advocates. These institutions of coercion may adopt a different version of social justice or other ends entirely that will violate the conception of social justice favored by any given proponent. And given that there is no uniquely salient pattern of distribution, the highly contested nature of social justice makes the potential for abuse even greater. That one cannot prove one's conception is, right, is the right one makes the perpetual struggle to control the institutions of coercion inevitable unless dissenters are somehow suppressed or eliminated, which historically is what happens to dissidents in societies that are committed to social justice. It's, it's not enough, therefore, for jo social justice advocates to identify a uniquely salient pattern of holdings as the just one, though this is essential. They must also identify the structural features of a legal system that can assure that the pattern they think is just and only the just pattern will be adopted, and that the powers required to monitor and perpetuate the just pattern will not be captured and abused to the detriment of social justice. Okay, now let's talk about legal moralism, change our focus a little bit. Legal moralists focused their attention not on how much stuff each person has, but on how each person ought to act when living his or her life. Each person should behave just the way legal moralists believe he or she should behave or be sanctioned by law. Legal moralists have a comparable set of problems as the social justice theorists. Indeed, we can simply port over much of the above analysis of social justice to legal moralism. Like social justice proponents, legal moralists disagree amongst themselves on the correct set of moral behaviors. Of course, all moralists, all legal moralists would maintain that acts like murder, rape, robbery, and theft, which violate the rights of others, should be banned, a belief they share in common with libertarians. For this reason, to preserve the distinction between libertarianism and legal moralism, it is important to distinguish between justice, not social justice, I mean real justice, justice, which is what I was referring to by, which I was using natural rights theory to elaborate on, on the one hand, which consists of prohibiting wrongful conduct that violates the rights of others, that's justice, and morality or ethics, which evaluates the full gamut of human action 
to distinguish good from bad conduct. So I think it's very useful to distinguish between right versus wrong conduct. Use that phraseology to talk about uh, uh, rightful behavior and wrongful behavior. That's a matter of justice. That's a matter of rights. And good and bad behavior. That's a matter of ethics. That's a matter of how we should live and treat other people. Now, you can use these terms any way you like, but that's a useful way of using appropriate, approved, moral terms to distinguish between one, right versus wrong, and the other, good versus bad. Now, all libertarians, and most everyone else, believes that force is justified to prohibit unjust or wrongful behavior. But legal moralists would extend the use of force to reach some or all immoral or unethical conduct as well. But while the consensus that murder, rape, robbery, and theft are wrongful and may be legally prohibited is widespread, indeed, it's universal, there is no comparable consensus about how all people ought to act or which moral code should be imposed on a society. But even assuming some uniquely salient moral code were identified, like social justice advocates, legal moralists require a powerful and intrusive set of legal institutions to gather information on how everyone is behaving in public and in private to detect whether they are behaving morally or not. Any institution that's powerful enough to accomplish this would be susceptible to enormous abuse. And this potential for abuse is even greater than it would be if a uniquely um, salient moral code were capable of identif being identified so that those who hold power could at least be held to those identifiable aims. Okay, enough, you get it. However, now when confronted with these inherent and fundamental problems with their positions, both social justice advocates and legal moralists tend to offer the same response, and it is democracy. We just let people vote on whether the correct on, 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 the corre on either the correct pattern of distribution, the correct moral code, or if you're really a moderate, both the distribution and the correct moral code. But this simply avoids the issue. It doesn't solve it. Although majority rule might arrive at some outcome, given the contested nature of both concepts, it is not likely to be a stable outcome, as winners must continually fend off the losers. This assumes, of course, that democracy is actually maintained after the initial vote, which is not typically the case in countries pursuing either social justice or legal moralist agendas. It's usually one and done. One election, they win, that's the last election you see, the last fair election you see. More fundamentally, how exactly is majority rule supposed to arrive at the correct answer to either social justice or the morality uh, or morality by the standard of the view of social justice or morality advocated? How are they supposed to do it? What sorts of arguments about right outcome can political advocates even make? What would a legislative debate about the right distrib distribution or correct morality look like beyond a mere assertion of one's conclusion in the form of one's vote? In short, what exactly makes a majority vote on any given day the right outcome of either a social justice or a legal moralist perspective? It doesn't. It just gives you an outcome. But there's absolutely no connection between that outcome and, and the right outcome if you're a social justice theorist or a legal moralist. If there's no assurance that a majority of, or of a group of individuals who are denominated legislators or representatives or a majority of the body of the public voting in a referendum will vote for the right outcome, then how exactly is democracy the solution to the problem of the radical indeterminacy of social justice or legal moralist perspectives? Far from being a solution to the problem of arriving at the right conception of social justice or legal, mor or legal morality, 
The appeal to democracy either disguises or merely restates the problem. It doesn't solve it. In the end, both social justice and legal moralism assume what we might call, and what has been called, a God's eye view. A God's eye view of how all physical resources in a given society should be allocated or how all persons should behave in their personal and public lives. Indeed, one could easily conclude that social justice proponents and legal moralists are simply substituting a secular government for God to create their own heaven on earth. But this project is simply beyond the capacity of the actual human beings that, must rely, that, that we must rely upon to devise and implement such a scheme. Hypothesizing about the demos does not even seriously address, much less solve the problem. Moreover, because both social justice and legal moralist visions are comprehensive approaches to social arrangements, any preferred position necessarily implies the rejection of all competing positions. To adopt any one pattern of distribution is to reject all, all other contending patterns. To adopt any one moral code is to reject all alternative moral codes. Not only do the comprehensive natures of both approaches make them inherently unstable, as those who favor alternative conceptions continue to agitate for their view of, social, of justice or morality, but this very instability has historically engendered highly coercive and often brutal measures to suppress dissent from the prevailing position. Whether enforced brutally or not, however, every loser of this perpetual struggle must be forced to live their life in a regime he or she takes to be unjust or immoral. The inevitable result of this dynamic is a Hobbesian war of all against all. And just as an aside, if you want to know another reason why politics are so ugly today, and that is you, you kick as many of these issues up to the national government, where it's winner take all, as opposed to handle it at the local level, where you can actually vote with your feet by going from one state to another, and you're going to heighten uh, the conflict about who gets to win that winner take all battle. That's your Hobbesian war being imposed on us. The recognition of these problems is as old as liberalism itself. Indeed, the origin of classical liberalism and libertarianism can be traced to the devastating consequences of religious wars during which comprehensive religious views fought violently against each other. And why shouldn't contending religions take up arms against their rivals? If eternal salvation is at stake, and salvation requires living in a society in which, all, in which others all believe accordingly, why should, not why should not religion be fought over to the death? Nor has this stance been eradicated from modernity. We see it today in the radical Islamist jihad that is gaining steam in a large part of the world, both in its deadliest form and in its drive to adopt Sharia law in democratic societies that is then coercively imposed on believers and oftentimes non-believers alike. The classical liberal solution to the problem of religious wars was religious toleration. The view that matters of conscience were matters of individual choice. Notwithstanding that one's eternal soul might be at stake, these proto-liberals contended that it was better for individuals to be free to choose their religions than to adopt a comprehensive one religion for all policy that led to perpetual and deadly domestic and foreign strife. Those favoring toleration did, need not and did not deny that one religion was right and the rest were wrong. In other words, they were not religious relativists. Instead, they, they, instead, they just needed to recognize that, that identifying the one true religion 
um, was sufficiently contestable as to make the imposition of one religion on all highly unstable and, dis and destructive to social ordering. Even from the point of view of religious truth, while the best outcome might be to have one, one's own true religion imposed on others, the worst outcome was to have another's false religion imposed on you. Everyone's second best outcome was to be free to exercise his or her own religion, which makes this policy the most stable and conducive to social peace. For this reason, rather than have one religion coercively imposed by a monarch, the liberal solution to, liberal, to religious strife was for each individual to be considered the king or sovereign of his own conscience. conscience. You're going to see a theme that I was hitting on yesterday. It's going to come back right now. Everybody gets to be the king or sovereign of their own conscience. Each individual was to live side by side with other individual sovereigns of their conscience. The way monarchs of countries under the, treaties of West, uh, under the Treaty of Westphalia were supposed to live in peace with their neighboring monarchs and to refrain from forcibly interfering with the internal affairs of other sovereign monarchs. For Westphalian monarchical sovereignty to work, however, the geographical borders within which each monarch was free to decide on his own internal domestic policies without outside interference must be identifiable and established. By the same token, the individual sovereignty entailed by religious toleration requires the identification and establishment of boundaries within which individuals have the jurisdiction to choose how to worship. In sum, the liberal solution to the Hobbesian war of all against all created by, a comprehen by, com by comprehensive religious claims was not to posit a sovereign monarch or leviathan to settle on one true religion for all. Indeed, that was the source of religious wars. But instead, to shift the conception of sovereignty over religious beliefs and exercises from the monarch to the individual person, with each, each with his, own, his or her own conscience. Building on this insight, the Lockean jurisdictional solution to the social strife created by the, by, by the comprehensive religious claims, these comprehensive religious claims came gradually to be adopted to handle lesser conflicts over mere moral disagreements. Remember, it's the more extreme important religious disagreement that got handled first, then the lesser disagreements got handled second. Just as the jurisdictions of sovereign monarchs is limited to their respective geographical territories, the jurisdiction of sovereign individuals is limited to their bodies and their justly acquired physical possessions. As in international relations, force is justified to keep everyone within their boundaries, but so long as they are operating within their respective jurisdictions and not invading the rightful jurisdictions or domains of others, individuals should be free to make their own moral choices. I skipped a whole page. It actually sounded pretty good. I made it sound good anyway. So let me just back up. I'm going to read that sentence again. It ends differently than you thought. All right. For this reason, rather than have one religion imposed coercively by a monarch, the liberal solution to religious strife was for each individual to be considered the king or sovereign of his own conscience. Each individual, I already read this to you. This, I am really messed up now. Hold on a second. Time out. Okay. 
Actually, I think I actually didn't mess up in the first place. As in international relations, force is used to keep everyone within their boundaries, but so long as they are operating within their respective jurisdictions and not invading the rightful jurisdictions or domains of others, individuals should be free to make their own moral choices. The more decisions, now okay, back on track here, all right? Are we all back? Good. The more decisions, the more decisions are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty. This is important. The more individuals are viewed as individual decisions are viewed as matters of individual sovereignty, the more libertarian this approach becomes. Indeed, modern libertarianism can be viewed as the push to see how many types of decisions can feasibly be delegated to the realm of individual sovereignty. The debate between libertarians and others and among libertarians themselves, is precisely how far this process of delegation can be taken. It is inaccurate to characterize this argument for delegation as premised on some atomistic individualism that assumes that each person is an island independent of others in society. Any more than did Westphalian monarchical sovereignty um, assume atomistic nation states. To the contrary, what is sought are the prerequisite of peaceful social coexistence in a world in which each person's actions are very much likely to affect others. As with contending nation states, social conflict and interdependence are the issue or the problem to be solved rather than denied by the recognition of individual sovereignty. Now it should now be clear that modern libertarianism merely takes individual sovereignty seriously and tries to push this concept as far as it can feasibly go. For libertarians, as for Locke, private property is the concept that defines the proper jurisdiction of each sovereign person who is sui juris or competent to manage his or her own affairs. And freedom of contract governs the transfers of these property rights from one person to another. Liberty, for a libertarian then, is not the Hobbesian freedom to do whatever one wills. It is the Lockean freedom to do, to do whatever one wills with what's yours. There is simply no libertarian, libertarianism without jurisdictional limits on freedom of action. The concept of property defines these limits and is what differentiates liberty from license. Libertarianism is distinctive in its attempt to limit coercion to the protection of these jurisdictional boundaries to the greatest extent that is feasible. Forcible interference by some with the liberty that is within the sovereign jurisdictions of others is as offensive to libertarianism as the unprovoked forcible interference of one nation, national sovereign within the boundaries of another is offensive to the prevailing view of international relations. However radical this may sound in the abstract, it is actually a far more modest approach than either social justice or legal moralism. Although the line between mine and thine must be drawn, Doing so is far more practical than specifying um, the morality of the entirety of human action. Although rules and principles governing the, governing the just acquisition, use, and transfer of property must be identified, this is far more manageable and less divisive and dangerous a task than continually readjusting the distribution of holdings, suppressing the acquisition of property altogether, or identifying a stable principle of fair share. Moreover, because proponents of social justice and legal moralism typically propose superimposing their schemes on top of existing structures of private property and freedom of contract, rather than supplanting them altogether, their stances are necessarily more ambitious than simply limiting legal coercion to the libertarian core that must still be determined on their account. If they're adding to it, 
it's more complicated, it's more challenging, and it's more radical or more extreme than simply leaving it go. Put another way, no matter how challenging the task of properly defining the proper jurisdictions of individual sovereigns may be, adding considerations of social justice or legal moralism to this, ta to this task makes it even more challenging. And in this sense, libertarianism is necessarily more modest than either social justice or legal moralism. Now, what about the social democracies of Western Europe or the now expanding social welfare state in the United States? Don't these political systems combine the individual sovereignty of private property with the redistribution of social justice as well as some degree of legal moralism? Don't these represent the true middle ground or what was once called the third way between an unconstrained system of either social justice or legal moralism on the one hand and the unconstrained liberty of libertarianism on the other? If these types of political arrangements are feasible, does this not undermine the libertarian objection to social justice, legal moralism, or both? Now, in some ways, I think the answer to this last question is yes. Superimposing a degree of wealth or income distribution, a redistribution or morals legislation on a robust base of private property is infinitely preferable to the radical, single-minded pursuit of either social justice or legal moralism. But this response to the case for libertarianism is actually a major concession to libertarianism rather than a genuine objection. For it concedes that libertarian principles of property provide a necessary baseline upon which some less than complete scheme of redistribution or, re or moral regulation can be superimposed. Moreover, advocates of social democracy assume the feasibility of this alternative to defining legal coercion to the protection of individual sovereignty. They assume it can be done. But what if such an approach is infeasible? What if superimposing social justice or legal moralism on the individual sovereignty defined by private property and freedom of contract is ultimately unstable? Why might that be? Perhaps institutions with sufficient power to effectuate social justice or to impose morality will inevitably be captured by the more powerful forces in society and put to other ends. Perhaps they will be inevitably used for a purpose that does not conform to the proper conception of social justice or morality. After all, as I've already noted, what realistic assurances have we ever been given that such a power can be limited to whatever theory is being advanced to justify its creation? What happens in a social democracy when 51% of the voters discover it can redistribute, it can vote to redistribute the wealth or impose their moral vision upon the other 49%. Or more likely, what happens when political entrepreneurs um, inspire, say, 80% of the electorate to, to confiscate the income or wealth of the other 20%? When this happens, how will social democracy preserve the individual sovereignty that the third way approach conceded was needed as the baseline? upon which something else was going to be put. What realistic mechanisms are proposed by advocates of the third way to ensure against this outcome? I've been teaching law and I've been writing about liberty for over 30 years now, and I have yet to hear any such proposal from any of my colleagues. It would be genuinely enlightening to hear proponents of liberal social democracy tell us how it will not eventually devour the individual rights that provide the foundation for their additional schemes of redistribution or morals regulation. And is that not a reasonable request to ask of them? In contrast, libertarians do offer a solution or two. 
to the problem of limiting government power to the protection of individual sovereignty. Like their classical liberal ancestors, most modern libertarians favor constitutionally limited government in which power is structurally divided among different branches of a federal or national government and between the limited powers of the national government and the broader police powers of states and municipalities. In short, these libertarians favor something very much like, if not identical to, the original meaning of the Constitution of the United States. The whole Constitution, including the parts that protect the unenumerated rights retained by the people and the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Other libertarians, having observed the continued decline of respect for the Constitution's limits on state and federal power, favor a more radical alternative. They would see law enforcement and adjudication be handed, competi handled competitively rather than by monopolistic government agencies. They favor consumer choice and competition as the best check on the abuse of the powers of law enforcement. In contrast with advocates of social justice or legal moralism then, libertarians and their classical liberal forefathers have paid considerable attention to how government power can be limited to the protection of the rights defining individual sovereignty that the libertarians favor. However persuasive their responses to these problems may be, they cannot be accused of ignoring it or with treating it less, with less than the seriousness that the problem deserves. Now in the end, there emerges a fundamental contrast between social justice and legal moralism on the one hand and libertarianism on the other. Advocates of social justice and legal moralism are concerned with ends to the exclusion of any serious consideration of means. All persons should have X amount of stuff. All persons should act or refrain from acting in certain ways. In addition to the failure to reach anything close to consensus, even amongst themselves, on what these ends should be. What is principally lacking is any serious attention at all, A, to the means by which one's uh, favored end will be achieved, and B, how the coercive institutions will be limited to just those correct ends without being perverted to pursue other ends that are deemed by any particular social justice or legal moralist theorist to be both unjust and immoral. In contrast, libertarianism is concerned almost exclusively with means rather than with ends. Even the fundamental rights of private property and freedom of contract that principally define liberty are conceived by libertarians as the means to the pursuit of happiness while living in society with others rather than ends in themselves. To be sure, the protection of these rights is treated as the end of government, but that's only because government itself is perceived by many libertarians as a regrettably necessary means of protecting property and contract, and by other libertarians as an unnecessary means. Of course, libertarians are seriously concerned with one end. We are concerned with one end, the end of living a good life, or what the Declaration referred to as the pursuit of happiness. It is this end that motivates their commitment to such means as private, uh, as, uh, private property, freedom of contract, and constitutionally limited government. But as I've already described, most libertarians believe that liberty is necessary precisely because the end of happiness will vary with the uniquely varying circumstances, goals, and aspirations of particular individuals. And because living the good life is, as my professor Henry Veach taught, taught me, a do-it-yourself affair. Real world experience, they maintain, has demonstrated that governmental implementation of either social justice or legal moralism has led to dystopias almost beyond our ability to imagine. In contrast, 
even an imperfect commitment to individual rights and limited constitutional government, as ours has been all too imperfect, has led to the greatest prosperity in human history. Of course, none of this is easy to prove. If it were, libertarianism would have either vanquished its intellectual foes or have been defeated by them. But consider what may be the ultimate empirical proof of the superiority of even imperfectly adhering to liberal principles, and it is what I did in answer uh, to the question that I got during my first lecture. Which way do the refugees run? Which countries need to restrict the exit of their citizens? Were, pe were people clamoring to get into or out of the USSR? Are they lined up to enter the malocracy of Iran? Are, are they, to the extent that they can, people vote with their feet for the increased prosperity made possible by the more robust protection of property as compared with government systems. Persons who are capable of relocating tend to leave societies preoccupied by the pursuit of social justice or legal morality and beat a path to the door of societies who pursue some semblance of the libertarian way. As empirical proofs go, this one is probably as good as any other. Of course, given that there is no true, truly libertarian society, this is a comparative matter. Which societies protect the rights of property and contract better than others? But in the end, this too is why libertarianism is modest. Libertarians posit their models of complete liberty as a means of incrementally inching existing societies in a more libertarian direction, step by step. Libertarians believe that good things will happen as this progress is made. And if we ever reach a point where the protection of property rights is having a counterproductive effect, we can stop there. In the meantime, we have a long way to go before we reach that point, or so say libertarians, with all due modesty. Thanks. All right, um, we know we're, we're reaching the end. We've got 35 minutes here on this clock that's up here. And I know that I'm all that stands between you and the swimming pool and then the uh, the drinks and reception, so it's a tough thing to do. Uh, and let me just say, for this discussion and question period, I see no need to focus on the, the my thesis about legal moralism and uh, uh, social justice. I think at this point, at this point in the conference, it's perfectly okay for us just to talk about um, what we can do as individual people, what's within our power to do as individual people to advance towards this more modest libertarian position. And let me just say, in that context, just pitching our view as modest is something we can do. How we position ourselves and then how we position our opponents is something we can do. I think some libertarians dispositionally like the idea of being radical and extreme. It, it, it appeals to them. It just doesn't appeal to the people they're arguing with. And so that's one thing that is within our power. So we can, we can talk about other things besides this talk in the next 30 minutes. And I'm happy to lead that discussion and give whatever thoughts I might have in reaction. Yes, sir. First, I got to say that this was the most eloquent, elegant, and precise description of the libertarian philosophy, moral, and ethics. It's just great. Thank you. And Thank I have. You. <laughs> Thank you. I love you too, man. <laughs> You're great. Thanks cool. for that. <laughs> well, and two not so small questions. Would you say that if a man has no jurisdiction of his property, or cannot of his own free will delegate that jurisdiction to someone that he would like to, jurisdict, uh, to have jurisdiction over him, that he has in fact no property over his things and his own body at all. And 
and this is kind of a, uh, my opinion and a question. People tend to forget that democracy, rather than an end in itself, is, is a mean, is a means to achieve social peace and order. And do you think that when people tend to look at democracy and think that it's like heaven on earth, they are confusing the origins of power with the limits of power? Um, yeah, I mean, the way the left view, and not just the left, but certain elements of the right view democracy is sort of self-rule and self-determination, and that's somehow uh, important. But, you know, as we were told with respect, uh, the other night, with respect to, for example, Latin American countries and South American countries, this has actually been an ideology that has been put in service of an aristocracy, who are the ones that actually control things. And so it's a cover story. And it's usually a cover story that's uh, funded by and, and, and promoted by the aristocracy itself. Um, or whoever the leader of the rabble is. They, they promote it too, and they're the ones that are getting something out of it as well. So that's, that's, that's you, you've made the point. I can only basically agree with you. Okay, what about the jurisdiction? What are we I saying? didn't quite understand that question. Because if a man has, hasn't have the jurisdiction of his own property, and he cannot choose of his own free will, he cannot consent to yeah. whom have the jurisdiction, he does not have property at all. He can only, he has a permission to use and to uh, possess Yeah, well, that's stuff. true, that's true. But you know, remember, I do think it's, I mean, unless you're basically saying it's not a matter of degree, because I think it is a matter of degree. I think libertarians uh, have a sort of, and I've been a libertarian for a long time. I mean, I've been a libertarian since the 1970s. I've been through the movement. I kind of know how libertarians think about stuff. I think that way myself, but there's some instincts I've tried to resist. Libertarians have, to have sort of like or attracted to an all or nothing at all. Um, uh, approach. It either is or it isn't. But in fact, with respect to a lot of these things, judging individual forms of government or individual societies, it's a matter of degree. Uh, now, we have an ultimate goal. Uh, goal of justice, which is all or nothing in the sense you have justice or you don't. But there, in, in achieving that, it's, it's, there are degrees. And so even though it's true that if you don't pay your real estate taxes, you will lose your house, and therefore, in some sense, you're renting your house from the government, um, uh, you can put it that way. Still, there's a big difference between that and living in state-supplied uh, housing. Um, and so it's a matter of degree. Okay. Thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm glad you found your lost page. And yes. We were able to complete that. Uh, I have two quick questions. As a, as a former prosecutor, uh, I've uh, been a beneficiary of uh, what I think is being referred to as policing for profit. Uh, what, uh, and I think we're going through a period now uh, that we went through back during the Harrison Act. I think Ronald Libby, who is a professor at the University of North Florida, has written a good bit on this. Uh, are you talking about civil asset forfeiture? Is it, what you, uh, what my, my question is, uh, what, uh, how do you feel about uh, prosecuting uh, uh, by the Department of Justice via DEA under the war on drugs of medical providers as drug dealers? And uh, my understanding is the first step is that since your assets are the product of uh, drug dealing, they're frozen and you can't afford a, a lawyer. Right. Well, the, the whole idea of seizing, this is a typical problem we have in current law enforcement. The idea that, and, there, and it's, it needs to be reined in, it's only likely to be reined in by statute. Um, uh, and in fact, I think Senator Paul has a statute, um, I mean statute, a, a, a bill that he's currently uh, trying to attract co-sponsors to that would rein in some aspects or limit civil asset forfeiture. But the idea that not only do you forfeit stuff after you've been convicted of a what, crime. What is the, the difference here between forfeiture and confiscation? 
Because you can't, you can't really, uh, as I understand the way the process is, uh, if you're charged criminally, they, the first thing is to freeze your assets. So you can't afford to put to buy. I, I can already uh, tell you this question has gotten way too technical for this discussion. Okay. Well, uh, I'd, I'd be all, interested I'm, I'm in this, a, I'm, I'm this, this group is interested in learning. Uh, yeah, uh, well, it's, it's a little too technical for me. So uh, the, I, 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 I'm trying to answer it in general sense uh, right, as, as okay. to the extent I can understand the question. Right. And, and, and it is this, that there is a serious problem currently that government can seize all your property um, in advance of actually adjudicating you as guilty um, because the theory is, is that you'll use those illegally gotten gains to hire lawyers and protect yourself from their prosecution, but that assumes they're illegally gotten, which is what they're supposed to be proving. And that's the way the law currently operates in many ways. It's highly unjust. It's going to have to be addressed legislatively. It's not going to be addressed by the courts. Um, and as I say, Senator Paul has a bill that he's trying to, uh, that he's sponsoring, and he's trying to attract co-sponsors now, uh, too, to try to restrict this, and that's how we, and it's a very serious problem, and it's going to need to be addressed, so I agree with you. Okay, and in and, and closing, uh, again, I've enjoyed your talk. Uh, you may or may want to comment on this, but uh, 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 may not be technical, but I'm interested in, uh, in your explanation of uh, the legal concept or doctrine of equitable distribution in the war on drugs? I, I'm not sure what you mean, and... What it is, the DEA has deputized uh, state police all over the country as well as local police. Okay. They all participate in a, in a drug bust of docks. Uh, they uh, have schools, how they uh, uh, teach uh, policemen to befriend uh, medical providers to write prescriptions for controlled substances, and. If they don't think it's done properly, uh, they can bring charges uh, as, a, as a drug dealer against the physician, freezing their assets. And uh, typically, uh, the doctor has to plead guilty, goes to jail, loses his assets. And they're, um, I think, I guess they're federal, um, in, in federal laws, the feds get 20% of the, the doctor's uh, practice assets. Uh, the other is divided among the state police and the local police, but typically they use either the federal laws. Some states have uh, much, more, much more severe yeah. laws, and they may prosecute under state laws or federal laws, but when they divide those up, they're divided among the federal police, which is the Drug Enforcement Administration, the state police that participate, as well as the local, which uh, it's kind of anathema to free property, in my opinion. I, I'm against that. Okay. So you had made a comment about uh, having a majority of voters approve a candidate or anything in particular is no, um, no meaningful way to ensure that they voted correctly, you know, just because a majority of people voted for something. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering, based on your experience as a prosecutor, um, is there any um, kind of market mechanism interject? Um, injections we could do to uh, increase efficiency in our judicial system? Uh, yeah. Um, I, don't, I, can't, I really don't think I want to get into, and I haven't really thought of recently, you know, specific reforms of our current judicial system. In, the, at the, in, in part three of the structure of liberty, I talk about how alternative legal systems uh, might be better than the current judicial system that we have in when you can actually choose which legal system you want to join 
Um, we do have a certain amount of choice sometimes in what legal systems we want to join that at the end of our contracts, it usually stipulates what jurisdiction is going to be the law that governs that contract. And oftentimes in our contracts, it stipulates the private arbitration is what, how it'll be adjudicated. It might even stipulate the name of the arbitration company that will handle it. This is all done in our contracts. We already have a certain amount of choice in, our, in uh, what legal system that we choose to participate in. The other choice is, of course, where you choose to live, that you get a legal system along with your house, not sure, or like you get a school system along with your house, too. Not sure those goods need to be bundled together like that. Uh, and so to the extent we can unbundle those things and we can inject more choice into um, those services that we get, um, market forces can discipline those services and give us better services so that you know, maybe the courts will stay open at night when people are get off work instead of making everybody take off work to go in and testify as witnesses, for example, as a small thing. So that's, that's what I talk about at the end of the Structure of Liberty in Part 3. Yes, sir. In your lectures, you make frequent use of uh, John Locke's second treatise and his theory of natural rights. Um, <clears throat> in his first treatise, however, which is rarely read today, Locke makes several statements uh, about how charity can function as a limitation upon the property rights of others um, or even as a competing entitlement. Um, at one point, he goes so far as to state that charity uh, gives a person a title to so much of another person's surplus as would keep him from extreme want. So my question for you is, do you believe that he's made a fundamental mistake, or is there some way to salvage that meaning and reconcile it with the second treatise? Um, if you look at classical natural law thinkers and natural rights thinkers, you will oftentimes see uh, charity uh, um, or other things being considered uh, called a right. But you have, they, all made, they also made a very important distinction um, that is not always clear in the context of the paragraphs that you're reading, and that is they distinguish between what was known as perfect right and imperfect right. A perfect right? and an imperfect right. As in the statement you've heard, I have a perfect right to that? You've heard that phrase, right? A perfect right is an enforceable right. An imperfect right is a moral claim um, that is not enforceable. So oftentimes when you see classical liberals discussing a right to charity or a right to assistance or a right to a certain level or this or that, uh, you have to then look around to see do they think that right is perfect? and therefore legally enforceable, is simply merely saying it's a, a moral claim that gives rise to duties in others. And most of all the time there, it's the latter, not the former. Yes, sir. Right. So as you said, um, uh, you've been involved for a long time in the liberty movement and everything, and you know much, pretty much everything it's a great about life. it. So, yeah. I, yeah, I urge all of you younger people <laughs> to get involved in the liberty movement. And it's yeah. a great life. You make lots of friends. We get yeah. old together. It's great. But, so, so my question is, uh, do you think that liber like libertarians in general uh, tend to invest not enough energy in promoting liberty through arts, culture, poems, movies, and stuff like this, as the government is subsidizing big time? Uh, let's say for, for my part, I'm, I live in Canada, and government subsidizes each and every movie. So I feel like if there's no one in the private sector that's a subsidizing movie, there's a great chance that most of the movie will be status movies. Uh, obviously, um, I think that the arts and all the other um, uh, ways of expressing one's ideas are very, very important to the culture. Um, it, you know, the arts are dominated by uh, the left, but in fact, the profit-making arts are dominated by the left. Just like I said the other day, they've marched through the institutions of higher education. They marched through Hollywood. Um, and these lefties control Hollywood even though they're supposedly making money. They're supposedly they have the profit motive. In fact, we all know they make one stinky losing, money losing picture after another, uh, which are the message pictures. Uh, they get paid for by the movies that people might want to go see. Uh, and, but that doesn't stop them. 
So it is a, we have a culture war in addition to other wars. And, uh, the, and, we, and it has to be fought on all fronts. But that is something that has to be done according to your, your own personal interest. So that my personal interest was to be a lawyer and it went on to be a law professor and things like that, but other people's personal interest is to make movies or be a journalist. And so you've got to, you've got to be, you, ha you have to respect your own calling. What, what, is, what are you called to do? Um, and then if you care about liberty, how do you take that calling and put it in service of this higher uh, goal of liberty? Uh, but it's all, this is a do-it-yourself affair too. This is an individual thing, but you're absolutely right. We need people like that. And, um, and, and, and of course we have people like that, but they have a, like academics, they have a tough fight to, to fight. Yes, sir. Uh, oh, first, thank you for the Diet Mountain Dew. Uh, <laughs> second, I wanted to ask, would you use your uh, three-part analysis you talked about the other day, where, you know, given... Given if then. X about human nature, if you want Y, uh, doozy, would you use that to argue for or against an eminent domain power in the state, like what is alluded to in the Fifth Amendment? I don't know if you think it's just or unjust, sound or unsound. Um, well, without going into detail about it, and it isn't anything that I myself have really written about, um, I think uh, eminent domain is, um, um, is approved, that is, it's constitutional, um, at the state level, at least. Um, uh, or that governed by state constitution. The, uh, for those of you who don't know, eminent domain is the power the government has to take private property for public use, provided just compensation is made. Um, and so the, the constitution does require that just compensation be made, um, so it presupposes that eminent domain is appropriate, at least at the federal level, it, and then uh, at the state level, state constitution is regulated as well. So there's no question it's constitutional. I myself as a libertarian don't, don't like that power, um, and then the question is, well, how do you build highways and roads and that sort of stuff without being able to confiscate people's land? And there are all kinds of market ways in which this has always been done. Um, you can purchase land, uh, you can buy up land secretly without saying why you're buying it, and, or you can actually, uh, you know, when you're building a highway or a railroad, you can actually put a curve in and go around <laughs> somebody's land you can't buy. I mean, so it's actually, it's, all roads don't actually have to be straight. You, may have seen that on, in the real world. And so there are things that can be done to deal with this, and it's a longer story, that, uh, that subject that libertarians love debating amongst each other, at least young ones do, and, um, but that's my view. I'm skeptical, I mean, I'm, I'm against it. I think it's not unconstitutional, but of course, as you all know, the Supreme Court has limited, has, has refuses to enforce the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, because they say, the, the Fifth Amendment says that nor shall private property be taken uh, for public use without just compensation, but they have interpreted public use to mean public purpose. Public use used to mean use of the public, or some subset of the, uh, some, or, or a private uh, entity like a railroad that was going to allow the public to use it. Not public use, which is anything, uh, not public benefit, uh, which is, uh, or public purpose, which could be anything. So they have basically eliminated that restriction in the Constitution on the power of eminent domain, and that is part of what I call the lost constitution. It's another part of the constitution that restricts power that has been done away with by, the, by Congress in complicity with the courts. Yes, sir. Uh, you invited us to depart from your presentation some within our questions and discussions, so I hope this will not be too far away and too distant. Um, so you mentioned Nozick, or you quoted Nozick, which makes me very happy as I'm a great fan of him. And so basically, so, uh, to, uh, so his you're, you're a fan of who? I didn't hear. Uh, Robert Nozick. Oh yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. 
So his principle of, of distributive justice is a historical one. All a distribution is just if, if it was preceded by a, voluntary, a series of voluntary exchanges. So unfortunately, as we all know, the history of exchanges up until this point has not been voluntary. And it is the case that even if from tomorrow we could uh, create a perfect libertarian state, it would, sort of, it would still be affected by the previous distribution, which was unjust. So, and Nozick himself, and this is something that greatly saddens me, obviously, but Nozick himself suggested in a paragraph in Anarchy State and Utopia that it would be maybe conceivably possible, this is too many mm -hmm. <laughs> words to say, mean the same thing, uh, that a sort of Rawlsian system could be used as a rule of thumb as sort of the best approximation of, uh, of a just distribution, which we cannot really find out what it is. So what do you think about this? And yeah. Okay, let me, let me just restate the problem for everyone. The problem is that uh, to the extent existing entitlements, existing distributions of rights, um, are in some respects unjust because they themselves were based on some kind of taking uh, in the past. Um, if you adopted a libertarian state, what would you do about those titles that even by the libertarian's own theory are not actually, the stuff is not in the right people's hands. Um, I, I think that what, this, this brings up an important issue um, and I do think one of the responses to that is to realize that a lot of this is time bound. That the passage of time um, ought to be allowed to lay rest to ancient claims. Because as you well know, and you know from reading the newspapers, um, you know, there hardly are any people who live anywhere who didn't, pre who didn't take that land from the previous people who used to live there. I mean, the Celts came in and conquered Ireland. We're not really still complaining about that anymore, but they did. And so you can just pretty much go anywhere and everything's been taken from somebody. There, with the passage of time, you have to let these claims go. That's your, that's, that's, I'm gonna posit that as a general principle. How long a period of time it takes, how long it, it is, I would say, um, here's a, I'll propose a rough principle, and I think I would actually myself might wanna make some exceptions to it, but the rough principle is, if the actual victims of the crime no longer are alive, and the actual perpetrators of the crime are no longer alive, and the people who currently hold um, uh, bought the, paid good, uh, paid full, uh, you know, full, full value for it. They actually paid for it, they paid full value for it. Then at that point, I think you'd have to let residual claims go. Um, I can think of some exceptions to this um, uh, that are historically uh, around, um, but by and large, I think that is a good rule of thumb. As long as you have a, a living victim, maybe the living victim's children, a, an identifiable group, and you have a living perpetrator, uh, or somebody who got the goods from that perpetrator without paying good faith money, you know, money in good faith for it, uh, then I'd say, go get it, go get it, go get it back. But once we've gone beyond that, then that's simply a recipe for social disorder and social conflict. And we need to understand that our principles have to be interpreted in light of time, the passage of time. Thanks. Yes. Uh, Paul Krugman once wrote that uh, the basic picture you should have of government is as a giant insurance company with an army. And uh, what that gets at is um, an idea that is contained in two of my favorite philosophy and economics papers, one that you probably know and one that's less known. The first is uh, Tyler Cowen's 92 Law as a Public Good, The Economics of Anarchy, where he argued that law is, uh, can be seen through the public good framework 
uh, in public economics. And the second one is uh, uh, the three normative models of the welfare state by Joseph Heath. And he goes through three uh, typical normative models. The first being um, one based on equality, which is what you talked about today. The second being based on community, which is the communitarian, and a lot of conservatives use that justification. And the third being the efficiency or public economic basis for the welfare state. Um, so uh, we know from Ronald Coase that hierarchies and command control within corporations can be an efficient solution to transaction cost. Those papers argue that in the case of law and even that normative argument can be extended to the welfare state. Yeah. So uh, that's a much more challenging argument, in my opinion, uh, to knock down. Right. Well, I'd ha I mean, in order to respond to it with the seriousness with which it deserves, I'd have to have read it recently, or in some cases read it at all, and then I would have to figure out what its, pre what its assumptions were and, and deal with it. Um, so I just can't do it justice, given your citation of it. Um, and, you know, sure, of course there are. Let me, let me back up and say, yes, there are technical objections uh, to different libertarian positions. And, you know, Tyler Cowen is a libertarian himself. So uh, there are technical objections to some libertarian positions uh, that are more serious in that sense because they operate in some respects within libertarian premises. Like, on your grounds, here's the problem you've got. And you have to deal with those if you're going to be a libertarian theorist. The point of my talk um, is simply to say that when we go up against these core intuitions and, and our claims that are being made by all kinds of folks who are themselves not theorists at all, who are arguing for social justice on the one hand or legal morality on the other hand, there is a fundamental problem with their views and that our view is more modest than theirs. Does that mean our view is not subject to any kinds of objections or problems? Absolutely not. But those views are worse, especially when they're only going to be superimposed on our views as an extra add-on. Then they have all the problems of our view and then they have their view, the problems of their view added to it. So, yes, there are other problems you could raise towards our view, but I can't answer those because I, I just I'm not that familiar with them. Yes, sir. Um, Hans Hermann Hoppe is a man who some of whose works I've read. He makes pretty persuasive arguments to me about the privatization of many, if not all, government functions. I'm wondering if his views fit under the umbrella that we've been discussing here, or if they're considered beyond them. Um, I haven't read them, so I can't speak to them. Um, the, in the, I will say as, uh, that it, in part three of The Structure of Liberty, I argue for a, compete, a, competitive, uh, uh, a competitive system of law enforcement and a competitive system of adjudication. By way of recommendation, I'd say almost everything I read, I respond with, yes! Uh, by Hans Hoppe? Yeah. Well, that's a good sign for him. I, I, that means something to me that you like him. Yes, sir. Uh, dropping back to an earlier talk, you mentioned that the doctrine of sovereign immunity is the source of the rules that give immunity to police officers and to judges uh, and prosecutors. Now that you're no longer a prosecutor, uh, do you believe that that is a good idea? The, the results of these often strike civilians as unjust. Right. And I wondered if you see a way around that. Um. I mean, I'm not in favor of it, but I, here's the problem with it. I, I think 
some this, I either said this privately to somebody or I said it in front of all of you. I can't remember. Maybe I said it at the Institute for Justice on Saturday. But the prob one of the problems, maybe that's where it was. The problem with um, um, eliminating sovereign immunity, and it's just a problem. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. And that is the people that actually end up paying for the lawsuits uh, against the people who have committed these offenses are the taxpayers. I mean, if, if you have a private lawsuit against these government agencies, the, they don't pay for it. They don't have their own money to pay for it. Um, I mean, it's okay if you go after individuals, but that's not, what that's not where the bucks are. They get multi-million dollar settlements against government entities, and then the taxpayers, innocent people, have to pony up money to pay who, what, some people who, other people who might be innocent people. I mean, that's entirely possible. It's not an argument that we should never do that, because it might be that, well, maybe that's the way you get taxpayers to, become, to make their agents and government responsible so that they won't be committing these offenses. So all I'm saying is that it's not, a, it's not as clear cut as when you go after an individual tortfeasor who themselves did it, and for their money, uh, or the money of their investors to go after a particular government official and then have that, be have that judgment be satisfied by innocent taxpayers. So that's not an argument in favor, it's not, not really an argument in favor of sovereign immunity, but it's an argument about caution in arguing for unlimited government immunity. That's uh, unlimited government liability, let's put it that way. Now I myself, in my first published article as a law professor, my second published article as a law professor, advocated uh, that we do implement, uh, instead of the exclusionary rule in, crim in criminal law, that we implement a system of compensation to victims of police misconduct that are monetary and that are assessed against the police department um, of, who employ that policeman. Because I believe that police departments are somewhat conscious, they're very conscious of their budget. Uh, they know how much money they get. They know how much money you know, they have to spend. Um, and a hit to their budget is a hit that they will notice and they will care about. They don't really care that much when evidence is suppressed in a trial because that doesn't really affect them. And besides, they can blame that on the judge and they can blame that on someone else and it's not their fault. Uh, and they got the bad guy off the street, it's somebody else who turned them over on a technicality. But if the money's coming out of their own budget, now you've got a hierarchical command system in which the sergeant tells the, line, the, you know, the beat officer, you can't do this or you shouldn't do that. That's, more, that's a lot bigger influence on what beat officers do, uh, that what their supervisors tell them to do, than what a court down the road might do, either to suppress evidence or even to assess you know, um, a, a fine against them. So I do think that anything that would affect the incentive structure of police to become more responsive to the people they are supposed to, quote, serve and protect would be an improvement and is necessary. Because uh, as much as I like cops and I work with cops, I respect cops, I think most cops get into the business for the right reason. Um, there's just no question that cops abuse their power um, and um, need to be controlled, uh, as all people you know, with power need to be. The exclusionary rule says that evidence that is obtained as a result of police misconduct cannot be used against a criminal um, who is, when you're prosecuting them. It's excluded from evidence. Now the problem, one of the big problems with that as being the only means of policing police misconduct, it means that the police only pay a price or the a price is only paid by somebody when you actually prosecute somebody for, who's guilt, probably guilty. All the people who are innocent of anything and there's no evidence of misconduct found, there's nothing to suppress. So the only time you suppress anything is when you're actually prosecuting somebody against whom there's been evidence of guilt. That's the evidence you're suppressing. So it's kind of perverse, um, and it's one of the reasons why in a swearing contest between cops and people whose rights have been violated, you're, it's always a swearing contest between cops and people against whom there's evidence of guilt. 
It's not a swearing contest between cops and perfectly innocent people who they searched unreasonably or without a warrant and nothing was found. Those people have no claim, none whatsoever, because there's nothing to suppress. That's what I proposed be rectified by having a system in which innocent people of police misconduct who are guilty of nothing can go in and make a claim in a special court, a special claims court, which is devoted to making, satisfying those kinds of claims. But, you know, I proposed this in 1983. Hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor. Uh, Two comments. First of all, just in passing, not inviting a discussion, uh, your argument in support of sovereign immunity would also apply in support of immunizing corporations from being sued because you're only punishing the shareholders who did nothing wrong. So I have problems with the argument, but I just, I mention that because I'm standing here, that's all. Uh, the main question I have is we, um, uh, restoring the lost constitution and the firmly held beliefs of most of us in the audience are well, we ache for the Constitution the founders gave us. We want that back. Uh, and it's been abused and altered by the usual stuff. And my, but my question is the Constitution itself, uh, looking through a libertarian prism, was not drafted by Cato. It was drafted by politicians who were determined, for better or for worse, to end up with a country. And that was the goal. And it involves, of course, enormous compromises. Therefore, it is not the holy grail for libertarianism. My question, because I ask the question myself all the time, uh, if you could, if, if you wanted to give a message to all those who could affect policy, what parts of the Constitution would you wish them not to adhere to? What parts of the Constitution, as a libertarian, offend you the most? I mean, the income tax amendment, I would start with that. Let's take the original Constitution, because I've always felt most of the amendments made the Constitution worse by a headcount. Um, but, but I don't want to have that. Just in the Constitution, and we'll throw in the Bill of Rights, because uh, it's the product of the founders. Which, which provision or two provisions as a libertarian offend you, if any, or you wish were different? In the original Constitution as amended. And I, the Bill I, of Rights. And the Bill I can't, I'm. I'm not thinking of any. But let me, let me just say, um, I did actually address the question of whether the Constitution is libertarian or not. In the um, Cato Journal, isn't that, that's what it's called, right, Tom? It's the Cato Journal, right? So it was in an issue of the Cato Journal, I was given the, what's the name of the lecture we have, the fancy lecture? Yeah, the B. Kevin Simon lecture, Constitution Day lecture, and I chose my lecture topic to be, is the Constitution libertarian? And so I went through all the clauses that seemed like they were and all the clauses seemed like they weren't, and the conclusion is that it's not a libertarian constitution per se. It's just the most libertarian constitution that's ever actually been implemented in the history of, of the world. Um, so, um, but, so it's a relative matter. I get back to my earlier point. These things are relative, they're not absolute. Um, I do think, the, I just want to emphasize here, uh, the original constitution was highly defective, highly defective, because it gave states so much power, unconstrained, in this case by the federal government, um, that uh, they could authorize the enslavement of some of their people but by others of their people. That's a big flaw. That's a big problem. It got fixed. 
by amendment, by one of the amendments that you didn't seem to... No, I just said a majority. Yeah, well, like the 13th and 14th Amendment. The 13th Amendment went to fix it, and then when that didn't work the way they expected it to, they did a do-over in the 14th Amendment, and then they really tried to fix it. So they, they created a federal constraint on states so that states don't have an unlimited power over their citizens anymore. What the Constitution currently lacks is an adequate state check on federal power. We need a reciprocal state check on federal power, which is the reason why a few years ago I backed a proposal. I, I devised it, and then I backed it when the Tea Party folks liked it, called the Repeal Amendment, which would be a constitutional amendment that would give the legislatures of the states the power to repeal any federal law or regulation. The original proposal uh, was that a, a supermajority of two-thirds of state legislatures could repeal any federal law or regulation. And, the new and I, I, one of the objections made to that is that if you actually go down the list, you can imagine a list of two-thirds of the states that represent less than half the country. And that was somehow objectionable to some people. And so I revised the proposal, the one that's in the appendix of, of the book, of my new version of Restoring the Laws Constitution, to say half of the states representing half of the population can repeal any state law, which sort actually like, makes it easier, sort not like harder. Like a mini Kentucky resolves? You know, there's a debate over what that really course, was about, the, the, uh, whether, you know, what they were really advocating. This is an actual legal structural constraint. It doesn't, it's not another provision of the Constitution that says thou shalt not do something that the courts turn around and interpret to say it's okay. This is a power that's going to be lodged in another group of people. They're government officials. They're every bit imperfect, but we play one group against the other, and it's a power that's lodged in state officials to check which is a different, who have different constituencies against the federal government. And half the states, representing half the population, could repeal any law. It's called the repeal amendment, and it may be if there ever is a convention of the states for proposing amendments, it's likely to be on the agenda there. But that gives you an idea and answer your question of ways in which I think the Constitution can be approved, improved. Um, let me just say, when you hear about constitutional amendments, and a lot of people have their favorites, Mark Levin wrote a, a book about 10 amendments he likes, I have 10 amendments that are in the appendix of my book, um, you should ask yourself the following question. Is it, uh, number one, is this amendment going to make the Constitution a better Constitution? Not does this amendment just hardwire into the system what I like in terms of policy results. But does it actually make the Constitution a better Constitution? I think having a state check on federal power makes the Constitution a better Constitution. But that's the question I, should, I think you should answer to yourselves, ask yourselves. And the second thing is, another provision of the Constitution that simply says Congress shouldn't do this, or Congress must balance the budget, or Congress should do this, and Congress shouldn't do that, or the President this or that, that the courts will then read out of the Constitution isn't going to get us anywhere. I don't think. It, it might be helpful, better than nothing, but it's a lot of work to get these things done, and it's got to be worth it. So it ought, what we ought to be in favor of is structural constraints that are self-enforcing. Don't require judges to do that job. And that's why, again, giving, empowering state legislatures to repeal a federal law does not require any judicial enforcement. It just is a new power. So we should be looking at things like that, things that are structural, not substantive, uh, when you're evaluating proposals that people make to, uh, to you. With that, I just want to say this is my last opportunity, like Rob said last night, to, uh, to, to thank you uh, for the attention that you've given me. And, and I have to say for some of the nice things you said to me um, uh, after my talks, I, I, it means a lot to me. Um, I come here because I care about liberty and I care, you know, this is not something that's a profit-making enterprise. It's something that is, we do because we love to. Um, I, I come here because it's the Rancho Bernardo Inn also. It has a nice swimming pool. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoy getting to know all of you. I'll see you all tonight and I do wish you the best. And remember, I think you just have, all you can do is what you can do. 
all you can do is what's within your power to do. And the only thing you can be faulted for is if you don't do that. Thanks.